Good morning. This is Jake Brown, and I'm the preacher at Liberty Christian Church in beautiful Madison, Indiana. We meet every Sunday at 10.30 a.m. and 6 p.m. You can find us at 8774 North U.S. Highway 421 in Madison. I want you to know this morning, though, that, that we would love to have you come join us in person. We love to meet new people, and we love to make ourselves available to help others learn the true story of who Jesus is, what he did, why he did it, and how to personally get in on the story. Well, it's just about time for the sermon to start, so turn up the volume, tune out the distractions, and it is my prayer that you find this morning's message engaging and meaningful. Tell me if this scene sounds familiar to you. People were crowding around the house of an important public official. There were literally thousands of people crawling around the area to the point that they were stepping on one another. And interestingly enough, they weren't there to see the man who lived in this house, but instead to hear what one of his invited dinner guests had to say. Now, this isn't a description of one of the manufactured riots of the past couple of years. This isn't a picture of a peaceful protest that got a little out of hand. This isn't even the scene of a bunch of college students marching onto the lawn of a private residence of some member of the university staff. This is the setting for Luke chapter 12, where Jesus had been invited to a Pharisee's home for lunch, where questions were being asked of him, and Jesus was giving strong answers, and where crowds had arrived on the scene that Luke chapter 12 verse 1 describes as so many thousands of people that they were stepping on one another. At one point, someone in this crowd who clearly recognized, at least to a certain degree, the authority of Jesus, calls out a request. And from that request, you, me, and the rest of Jesus' audience receive an absolute treasure trove of teaching on the dangers of greed or covetousness. Over the past several weeks, we've been talking about contentment from a biblical perspective, of course. We've discussed what it is, what it looks like, its value, and of course, how to become content. And this morning, in our sixth and final message about contentment, we're going to look at this great threat to our contentment. Greed is the enemy of contentment. Greed mounts an attack against us, and it tries to steal our contentment. Therefore, we need to guard against such an enemy. So this morning's message is called Contempt, Guarding Against Greed. And as we read through Luke chapter 12, verses 13 through 34 this morning, we're going to pause along the way and look at four big lessons that stand out from Jesus' teaching here. The first lesson we see is a material misunderstanding. A material misunderstanding. As we begin reading in Luke chapter 12, verse 13, this is where the man I mentioned earlier recognizes that Jesus is a man who speaks and teaches with authority. And this guy calls out a request. Luke chapter 12, verse 13, scripture says, Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who appointed me a judge or arbitrator over you? Then he said to them, Beware. And be on your guard against every form of greed. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. Now, this guy here wants Jesus to reconcile a, a civil matter. And this guy wanted Jesus to act as an enforcer on his behalf so that he might receive the goods and or livestock and or land and or money that, that he believed he deserved. 
Now, of course, Jesus was not going to deal with these kinds of disputes. He didn't want to be an earthly enforcer between a couple of brothers. His focus was on the eternal inheritance, which God wanted to give to all men. He wanted to get people to quit worrying about stuff and start focusing on souls, theirs and others. And so he warns them and us to guard against every form of greed. This dangerous, all-consuming desire for more of something on this earth. We can be greedy for money. We can be greedy for possessions. We can even be greedy for time. So many people sacrifice what they shouldn't for money. They're being greedy. So many people waste precious time and other resources in the pursuit of stuff. They're being greedy. And so many people selfishly use all of their time for themselves. You can't get more time, but you can spend it all on yourself. This, too, is what greed looks like. And then in verse 15 that we read there, Jesus is clearing up this apparent material misunderstanding. He says, for not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. You see, some people believe that life is materially improved by material stuff. Well, this is a material misunderstanding. Contrary to popular belief, no matter how much stuff we have, it isn't what our lives are made up of. Therefore, it is just stuff. It serves a purpose, but it can never be what is most important. It's not who we are. Our soul is who we truly are, and our soul is what is most important. So when we guard against greed, we're guarding our souls because greed puts a focus on stuff at the expense of our souls. Understanding the purpose of stuff and that it is not a significant portion of our lives goes a a long way in guarding against greed so that ultimately we can be content in Christ. Next, we see an important lesson taught by Jesus through the illustration of a self-absorbed attitude. A self-absorbed attitude. As we continue in the text, Jesus gives this illustration. Verse 16 says, And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no place to store my crops? This man, the scripture says, first of all, was blessed with very productive land. Now, who created that land? Who caused the land to be very productive? Who sent the rain? Who sent the sunshine? Who created the nutrients in the soil? Who gave this man the ability to cultivate the land? Who allowed this man to enjoy the fruits of this very productive land? Well, the subject of Jesus' parable here is portrayed as a man who never gave thought to these questions. Certainly never acknowledged the answer to these questions. Verse 17 says, essentially, that he viewed his situation as a problem of just where he was going to pile up all the great overabundance that he had. He gives no thought, apparently, to the notion of giving thanks or, or sharing it with others. If we continue in verse 18, it says, Then he said, This is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods, and I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. Now, I trust you hear how everything is, I will do this and I will do that. These are my barns, this is my grain, my goods, and even, he says, my soul. And the one time that he seemingly refers to somebody else because he says, you have many goods, take your ease, he's actually, of course, just referring to himself in the second person. He's talking to himself. What a greedy, self-absorbed attitude. And how dangerous it is to have such an attitude. How dangerous it is to believe that piling up a bunch of stuff is going to ensure many years of easy living. We continue on in verse 20. Jesus says, But God said to him, You fool. This very night your soul is required of you, and now who will own what you have prepared? 
so is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Now, I want you to see, I want you to notice, Jesus said, so is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. In other words, when we are self-absorbed and store up stuff for ourselves and leave God out of the equation of our lives, like a fool, God says here, then, then we will be just like the man in this parable, meaning we will meet a very similar fate. If we don't recognize God as the giver of all good gifts, if we don't thank him for those gifts, and if we don't use them to generously serve others, then we are self-absorbed like the man God calls a fool. Greed wins. Contentment is stolen. And our spiritual destiny is what's hanging in the balance. Now, the third lesson is a very important one. We might say that Jesus teaches us here about an enlightened life. An enlightened life. Continuing on in verse 22 now, and he said to his disciples, for this reason, I say to you, do not worry about your life as to what you will eat, nor your body as to what you will put on. For life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Now, before we go any further, notice that Jesus told his disciples for this reason, okay? When he says that, he's referring back to the fact that men who act like the man in the parable that he just told will meet the fate of the man in the parable he just told. For this reason, because this is true, don't worry about what you're going to eat or what you're going to wear. Jesus has already said that life is more than your stuff. Life is about more than just your stuff. In fact, stuff just doesn't make up your life. Your life does not consist of stuff, right? In verse 15, he said, For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. Jesus is introducing here an enlightened life, we might say. He's about to open his audience's eyes, enlighten them in that way, with, with some illustrations that are going to show them why and how they can live without greed or worry. You might read that as with contentment. Verse 24, Jesus said, Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap. They have no storeroom nor barn, and yet God feeds them. How much more valuable you are than the birds. Now, we know that birds know how to do certain things. We know that birds uh, even know how to prepare for certain things. They make nests and stuff like that. But birds don't work like us. Birds don't prepare a field. They don't work a field. They don't reap a harvest from that field. Birds don't have storerooms. They don't have barns. Even still, they're God's creation, and God doesn't leave them without his care and his assistance. And God sees to it that the birds get fed, that they get what they need. And how much more valuable is a human being than a bird. Who did God create as the apex of his creation? Who did God set in authority over it all? Let's continue in verse 25. Jesus said, And which of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his lifespan? If then you cannot do even a very little thing, why do you worry about other matters? Now here's, here's an enlightening moment for sure. The simple act of worrying about something cannot add an hour to your life. This right here is the futility of worry. Sometimes we feel like we need to worry, right? I'm the same way. Sometimes we feel like we need to worry in an effort to protect something or to protect someone or to gain some sort of benefit that we wouldn't otherwise gain. But worry doesn't actually have a positive benefit like this. Worry doesn't have any positive benefit. We need contentment. Contentment protects. Contentment shows God that you trust him to provide, and contentment shows God that you can be trusted with what he chooses to provide. We need contentment, not worry. Now, something else that I want you to notice here 
is that the God who created us and gives us every reason to be content because he promises to sustain us, this God calls the ability to add length to our lives a small thing. In fact, not just a small thing, but a very little thing. That's what Jesus says here. Jesus says, if you can't do this very little thing by worrying, why do you worry about these other matters? Guys, being enlightened in this way, this should help with our contentment. Look at what you're tempted to worry about. Look at what your worry is actually capable of doing. And then consider what God is capable of doing. Now that right there is a pretty decent formula for going from worried or potentially worried straight to content in a hurry. Verse 27, Jesus said, Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, but I tell you, not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. Now, Jewish folks were all uh, very familiar with the riches and, of course, the wisdom of Solomon. So Jesus uses this very familiar example to create a vivid example of God's provision for them. He says in verse 28, But if God so clothes the grass in the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, how much more will he clothe you? you men of little faith. Think about it. The lilies, the grass of the field, clothed in finer beauty, more intricate detail, more complex coloring and textures, created for a short life and an inferior purpose to our own. And God has no problem providing for them, sending rain, enriching the soil, causing the whole surrounding ecosystem to do its job. How much more will God do all of this for us? Don't you believe it? It's a rhetorical question, of course, here. God is going to do infinitely more. Jesus goes on to say in verse 29, And do not seek what you will eat and what you will drink, and do not keep worrying. Verse 30, For all these things the nations of the world eagerly seek. But your Father knows that you need these things. Now, first of all, do you hear the command? Do not worry. It's a command. And it's a command not because God is insensitive, not because God doesn't understand why we worry. It's a command because God knows that it's not good for us. It doesn't create a benefit for us. And in fact, it has negative effects on us. So God commands us to cease worrying because he cares. He cares. In verse 30, Jesus says, your father knows that you need these things. So it's not just a test to see if we'll do as we're told. It's not some arbitrary challenge. God is not hazing us. This command comes with a comfort. Don't worry. It's not good for you. Your father knows that you need these things. D don't, don't worry. Your father knows what you need. So we need to accept the enlightenment that Jesus is giving us here for our lives. Don't keep worrying. Trust the God who knows all about the things we need. Be content in him. And then last, finally, when we've allowed Jesus to clear up the material misunderstanding like we talked about at the beginning, and when we've learned from the example of the self-absorbed attitude like, like we got from Jesus' parable, and as part of our response to this enlightened life that we just talked about, Jesus calls us to an eternal investment, an eternal investment. Oftentimes in life, we find that to get rid of one thing in our lives, we need to fill that new void uh, with something else, right? Right? Or sometimes 
If we really want to begin doing something in our lives, we need to remove something from it, right? It works in, in the other direction as well. Now, in some cases, that's just because there isn't time or resources for both. In other cases, it's because the two things are counterproductive, right? You can't uh, make it a goal to spend lots of money and save lots of money, right? Those are counterproductive. You can only do one or the other. Well, in verses 13 through 30 of our text, Jesus has taught us what to remove from our lives, right? That's all the stuff we've talked about so far. He's taught us that, that life is not about our possessions, no matter how much we have. He's taught us the, the danger of becoming self-absorbed and greedy. He's enlightened us when it comes to the reality of the things that we worry about and shouldn't. And then now, as he begins to show us what we should add to our lives, he lands with these words. In Luke chapter 12, verse 31, he says, But seek his kingdom and these things will be added to you. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. So instead of becoming so invested, so saturated in stuff and self and stress, seek his kingdom. Strive for the righteousness of God, because while worry doesn't help, Seeking to honor and serve God does. Do this, and Jesus says, these things will be added to you, right? There's a measurable promised benefit here. When Jesus says, these things will be added to you, he's referring to the things that we need. If we do what we should do, if we don't stress, we, we aren't greedy, we aren't self-absorbed, we're generous instead, trusting that God is going to provide for us, these things will be added will receive what our Father knows we need. And in verse 32, he even tells us not to worry because ultimately, God wants us to enter into and enjoy his kingdom. So rather than spending our time being greedy for stuff or worrying about it, we need to be making eternal investments. In verses 33 and 34 of our text, Jesus said, sell your possessions and give to charity. Make yourselves money belts which do not wear out an unfailing treasure in heaven where no thief comes near nor moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, God doesn't tell us here how much to sell. He clearly doesn't say to sell at all. But he also clearly forbids keeping a bunch of it for yourself or amassing vast sums at the expense of helping others, right? The spirit of the lesson here and the spirit of the lesson in other passages of scriptures is to be incredibly generous, to sacrifice, to make giving part of your getting, right? God gives you things and you give. When you get, you give. Christians are taught to give when we get, right? But can we be greedy and generous like this? Can we be worried about money and possessions and be generous like this? The obvious answer is no. So as Jesus says here, don't get too excited about your leather wallet or your purse that's just going to wear out and can only hold temporary treasures anyway. Instead, focus on your spiritual wallet, which doesn't wear out. Focus on stashing away the spiritual rewards of, of practicing love and generosity and sacrifice and service. This is the eternal investment that we are commanded to make of our lives. Jesus describes it as an unfailing treasure in heaven where no thief comes near nor moth destroys. That is an eternal investment. And this eternal investment is not some add-on to our life. It is to be our life. Jesus said, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It's not a hobby. It's not a part-time job. It's not just another responsibility that we have in our lives. This is supposed to be the focus of our life. This has to be where our heart is. Even in this material world that we live in, we need to train our minds to see treasure as something that's found in heaven, 
something that is stored up in heaven, something that we can confidently expect to receive when we live our lives as a true eternal investment. When we do that, it's only natural to become content in whatever circumstances we find ourselves in, in the, on this earth. All the examples today, all the lessons, all the concepts, all these commands here in Jesus's discourse in Luke chapter 12, verses 13 through 34, lead us toward contentment. Everything that we see here is drawing us toward that state of satisfaction that we live in when we have faith in God to provide, when we trust in what he chooses to provide, and when we are grateful for all that he provides. As we avoid the material misunderstanding, which is believing that life is materially improved by material things, as we avoid that misunderstanding and believe Jesus when he says, beware and be on guard against every form of greed, for not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions, that calls us toward contentment and that prepares our minds in such a way that we might genuinely become content. When we learn from the terrible fate of the rich farmer's self-absorbed attitude in Jesus' parable, and when we believe Jesus when he says, so is the man who stores up treasure for himself. When we refuse to entertain ideas like, well, maybe I'll be the exception to that rule. Then we've prepared ourselves to be both content and generous. As we understand and begin to live that enlightened life based on Jesus' clear illustrations of how much God cares about us, through those beautiful, clarifying, and powerful illustrations with birds and lilies and grass, it starts to make more and more sense to, to trust God, to just trust Him, to believe Him when He says He's going to take care of us, that He will take care of us, that He knows what we need. And that, of course, begins to make contentment a greater reality in our lives. And then, of course, as we understand what life on this earth is really all about, as we shun selfish living, as we stop worrying about the stuff of this world and begin to turn our lives into an eternal investment, we free ourselves from any sort of dependence on the things of this world. We don't measure our worth by those things. We don't measure our success by those things. We don't base our level of joy or satisfaction on those things. We are content in Christ. This Christmas season into the new year, and throughout your entire life in Christ. It is my prayer that you can apply the lessons of these past six weeks to your life so that you can be content, having faith in God to provide, trusting in what he chooses to provide, and being grateful for all he provides. As we finish things up here today, I'd like to ask those of you listening on the radio right now the most important question that any of us could ever be asked. It's a question that each and every single one of us needs to be able to answer honestly. Here's the question. If the Lord were to return today, do you know for sure, no doubts, that you'd go to live with him forever? I mean, do you know for certain that he's going to let you into heaven? Can a person even know? In 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, the Apostle John writes that we can know. He says, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 7-9, through 9, Scripture says that there's coming a day 
when the Lord Jesus Christ will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. So according to the Bible here, somebody's going to get in trouble when Jesus returns. Somebody's going to pay. Now, who did this passage of scripture say was going to pay the penalty of eternal destruction? Well, there are two groups listed here. Those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Now, maybe you know God, but have you obeyed the gospel? Have you obeyed the gospel. Now, before you answer that, let's make sure we know what the gospel is. In Romans chapter 1, verse 16, the apostle Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So the gospel is obviously the power of God for salvation, but, but what is the gospel? Well, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 4, the Apostle Paul says, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel, which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. And now he's going to tell us what that gospel is, what that message is. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. So there are three main statements that make up the gospel. Christ died for our sins, Christ was buried, and Christ was raised on the third day. Christ died for our sins, Christ was buried, and Christ was raised on the third day. The Bible teaches us that his death paid the price for our sin, and his resurrection made eternal life possible for us. So now that we understand what the gospel is, let's get back to our question, how do we obey the gospel? Well, I want to read Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4 for you, and I want you to listen and see if you can hear all three parts of the gospel being played out here, the death, the burial, and the resurrection. The Bible says here in Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4, or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Now, did you catch that? When we are baptized, the Bible says we are baptized into Christ's death. When we are baptized, the Bible says we are buried with Christ. And finally, when we are baptized, we are raised up as Christ was raised from the dead, so that we too will walk in newness of life. Now, before we can obey the gospel, we must believe the gospel. We must believe that Jesus did what the Bible says he did for us. We need to believe that Jesus is who the Bible says he is. The Bible says that Jesus is the Christ. He's the one who would come to save us from our sins. He is the son of the living God. He himself is God, one of the three distinct personalities that make up God. And he is God the son who came to earth in human form. We must hear the gospel and believe it. We must trust Jesus completely. We must make a distinct turn away from sinful living and toward God's holiness and righteousness. The Bible calls this change in our behavior repentance. We must confess our belief that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And of course, we must obey the gospel through baptism, where we are immersed in water by the authority of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. This is where we are baptized into 
Christ's death into his burial and raised up to newness of life by the power of God. The same power that raised Jesus from death. And Acts chapter 2 verse 38 and Acts chapter 22 verse 16 make it clear that at our baptism our sins are forgiven, washed away. 1 Peter 3 verse 21 says baptism saves us. Galatians chapter 3 verses 26 and 27 teaches us that through faith and as a result of our baptism we become children of God clothed with Christ. Let me ask you again, if the Lord were to return today, do you know for sure no doubts that you would go to live with him forever. If you haven't obeyed the gospel, please know that we would love to talk with you about your situation. We would love to answer any questions that you have, but we would sincerely appreciate the opportunity to discuss with you the costs of following Christ. If you're interested, just keep listening and we'll tell you in just a moment how you can get in touch with us. just listen to the current sermon from Liberty Christian Church, the very same sermon that you would have heard today in person at Liberty. I'm Jake Brown, and on behalf of the church, I want to thank you for listening to today's broadcast. If you're in the area, I want to encourage you to join us in person at Liberty Christian Church. We meet each Sunday at 1030 a.m. and 6 p.m., and I'd love to encourage you to come to both services. Our address is 8774 North U.S. Highway 421, Madison, Indiana. And if you'd like to call us, just call 812-273-1518. If you'd like to send us an email, you can do that directly from our website, www.liberty-christian.com. But again, we'd love to have you join us in person if you're physically able to do so. Remember, we love you, God loves you, and it is our prayer that he will bless you this week as you seek his truth.